What do you think of when you think of fermentation? You probably think of beer, wine, maybe sauerkraut. What would you think about going to a dinner that revolved around fermented foods? What do you think would be served? Would you want to go? I think for most people in the U.S., when they hear the term fermented foods, we assume that it is going to be something exotic or strange. Like, my parents are pretty meat and potatoes kind of Americans. The idea of a fermentation dinner, it would probably weird them out. I think a lot of people are scared of the word fermented, like it's become synonymous with funky. That's Meredith Lee. We've had her on the show before. She's the author of the Ethical Meat Handbook, but she also teaches courses on fermentation. The, per- the best examples that I love to give people are like coffee and chocolate. You know, these are like foods that everybody loves, you know, for the most part. And they're both fermented, both with like mold, <laughs> which is like, you know, weird for people to think about, you know, but also like miso, sake, soy sauce, wine and beer, like all these things that pack like huge flavor punches into our food and bring us great enjoyment and pleasure. I mean, cheese is my favorite food in the entire world. It's a fermented product. And then my specialty obviously is charcuterie and meat, which is often sort of left out of the modern day, like popular fermentation conversations, but like rich salamis and amazing dried meats are also fermented products. Um, And so I think people are really astounded when they hear obviously like all the different things that they already eat that have been fermented at some point along the supply chain. So a while back, the local culinary festival, Chow Chow, asked us at Dirty Spoon to take a look at some of the events they were holding this summer. In the wake of COVID, and in lieu of the usual grand tasting and food festival rigmarole, they've been hosting these incredible curated dinners with a handful of chefs and panelists that specialize in certain aspects of often ignored culinary culture. And you guessed it, they're doing a dinner that revolves around fermentation. And I thought, what an incredible opportunity to get to know some of the makers in this area that are deep, deep in the weeds on a subject many of us might not give a second thought. So from WPVMLP and Dirty Spoon Media, this is a Dirty Spoon Podcast Extra, done in partnership with Chow Chow. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and today we're going to do a deep dive into the world of fermentation with some of the region's finest fermenters. So stick around. I was born in uh, Japan, of course, you know. I decided to come this country where like a, I was old, like a 35 years old, and then I like to learn more about macrobiotic diet. That's Joe Cato. Joe came to the U.S. to study microbiotic foods in Boston at the famed Kushi Institute. He wound up moving to New York to work at the legendary macrobiotic eatery Suen. Through his studies, Joe found out about a little company in Western North Carolina making batched miso, and the next thing he knew, he was moving to North Carolina to join the ranks at American Miso Company. When I came to this country, that time it's already American Miso Company was started already, but it's really small size. And then after a few years, so I decided to join American Miso Company. That was like late 80s. We, we had a wooden bat, like a, maybe it's in a, inside like a 7,000 pounds or seven to 8,000 pounds so in each bat. So that's time like a, only we have a eight of them. 
but now we have a 55. So it's, now it's really yeah, getting big business now. By now, American Miso Company, just like Joe said, is the largest organic handmade miso company in the world. You can find it at Whole Foods around the country or at any of your mom and pop health food stores. It's affordable, quality miso. But what is the story with miso anyway? I mean, most Americans only encounter miso as an appetizer at their local sushi joint or as an added ingredient from a hipster chef trying to fancy up a sauce for his short ribs. But where did it come from? Yeah, uh, miso in, in Japan, uh, their history is, uh, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years ago, they started. Beginning, it's kind of miso came from China, but it's di- totally different stuff now we call miso. So that miso is only Japanese making now. So only Japanese original miso. So they, you know, first came from China in a basic stuff, but Japanese people create more and more, better and way, better way, better way. And then right now, so no more Chinese making those kind of miso. It's only Japanese making this kind of miso now. Miso is a very good source to conserve, you know, food. And also it's it's really very nutritionally very good. So people find out those kind of things and then, you know, they try to get make more better miso and better miso. And many Japanese people have miso soup every day or but still, you know, there are so many miso companies in Japan, big one and a small one, but organic miso, the mostly a very small company. There are, there are several small companies, pop and mom shop. They're still trying to make a traditional way. But most of company, big companies, of course, you know, all automated and it's not really traditional anymore. But our company is still trying to do a traditional way. So right now it's kind of our company might be a world's largest organic miso maker. That's kind of feel yeah. strange to have come over to the US to, and be running the largest yeah. miso making, like organic miso making operation in the world. Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's a little strange. Because I bet when you first came here, people were kind of weirded out by the idea of fermented foods. Mm-hmm. But yeah. No. They didn't understand, you know. So many people come to my booth and they're like, oh, I hate fermented food. Blah. And it's like, well, wait, 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 because I smell beer. I smell beer. And that's, ha <laughs> you know, and, and, you're, and you're eating that, that, that sourdough bread that's crusty and delicious. And, and, our, and, and that cheese you have that's local on top of it. Are, are you sure you don't like fermented food? And how can I help you change your mind? You know, this is Meg Chamberlain. She runs a fermentation company called Fermenti and hosts a fermentation festival every year. She, Joe, and Meredith will all be speaking at that chow chow dinner I was talking about. Fermenti is a powerhouse of fermentation uh, housed in Western North Carolina. Um, We literally will ferment just about anything. And if we don't know how to ferment it, we'll find somebody that does and we'll help you do it. Fermenti is interesting because they aren't simply looking to sell a product, although they do have a rather expansive line of fermented goods to purchase. But they also teach people how to do it themselves, which is interesting because the more I think about it, maybe that's the best way to get people to understand fermented foods. I can tell you all day that coffee and chocolate are fermented foods, 
but it doesn't remove the stigma or bizarre idea that fermented foods are just infected with bacteria. But give us a lockdown during a global pandemic, and suddenly everyone is making sourdough starters. Perhaps making it yourself is the way to make fermentation more approachable. And perhaps the reason why we don't think of chocolate as a fermented food is because we don't actually get to see it happening. Well, I know someone who does get to see it happen. Chocolate comes from a tropical evergreen tree called Theobroma cacao. Jail Skeffington, owner of the French Broad Chocolate Lounge. Theobroma translates um, from Latin as food of the gods. And so it's always been imbued with a lot of meaning and ritual and culture um, since, since its early days in Aztec and Mayan ancient history. Um, so the, the plant is this super weird um, um, tree that, that um, grows these big kind of Nerf football sized pods. And within the pods, you find rows of seeds. Um, they're about the size and shape of an almond and they're covered in this white, slimy fruit. The fruit is delicious. It really doesn't taste like chocolate. It tastes like kind of guava, banana, mango, just kind of this tropical fruit mashup. Um, it's super tasty. And, but it's just this like thin covering on the seed. And so it's, it's like, if you open up the pod, you find these rows of seeds. If you pull off a seed, you can kind of stick one in your mouth and um, kind of suck the fruit off. But the seed itself at this point, which is the raw material for chocolate is pretty gross. It's really bitter, um, it's acidic, it's astringent. Like you just kind of want to spit it out when you put it in your mouth. And that's, um, you know, almost kind of Michael Pollan, um, speaking it's almost like adapting to um like uh perpetuation of the species uh, because the 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 fruit re relies on intervention to um propagate but anyway this disgusting bitter seed um is covered in this lovely fruit and um the fruit is actually the medium for fermentation. So it's not technically the chocolate that is fermented, it's the fruit that is fermenting and then the, the acids and enzymes from that fermentation process of the fruit penetrate the seed and transform it. Uh, transform their color, transforms the consistency, and most importantly to us who enjoy chocolate, it transforms the flavor and begins to develop the flavor precursors that we think of and know as chocolate. But that fermentation step is, it's basically the most important um, contributing factor to chocolate flavor. If we don't have well-fermented beans, we do not have amazing chocolate. You know, fermentation is a transformative process. Meredith Lee. You know, and so it's really ripe with metaphors for what's going on in the food system right now, you know, in terms of creating more justice and equity and um, creating more regenerative cycles at the production level. Like fermentation is going on in your compost pile. Fermentation is going on in your soil, you know, in the springtime when, you know, plants are, you know, the sun comes out and, and the soil's warming and bacteria in the soil are synthesizing the plant matter and, and creating rich soil for the next generation of plants, you know? And so 
people kind of realizing that fermentation is at play in their digestive systems, in the soils, in the compost pile, as well as in the food that they eat, I think is is really sort of synonymous with what is happening in terms of people waking up to how the world works and how much more like intentional and checked in and conscientious, you know, we are getting as culturally about, um, about world making, like how we want to move the world forward. Fermentation has the, the potential to empower individuals in their own, uh, food systems. So, um, you don't have to have access to a lot of resources to be able to learn to pickle vegetables when you have access to them or when you've grown them or to learn to preserve meat. Um, there's just a lot of um, opportunity for um, making the, the bounty of food more available year round um, with the methods of preservation. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in um, this area, but um, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a really important way for people to be able to make the most of their food budget. What about you? Do you ferment any foods of your own? Do you make your own kombucha? How about a sourdough bread? I personally make kimchi and sauerkraut. But if you're looking to get started on your own, where do you even start? Most times when people learn how to ferment, I do try to steer them towards the basic sauerkraut, uh, just because it's sea salt and cabbage or salt and cabbage. Meg Chamberlain again. So I, I would suggest to start at the at the basic, just plain sauerkraut. But if you're more adventurous and you and you're you're savvy to YouTube, uh, my favorite ferment to do that is t uh, very timely right now would be cherry tomatoes. So, and we talk, we go through about how to do cherry tomatoes on there, and you just basically stab them, throw them in a jar, make a brine, and pour over, and you wait one to three days depending on the temperature in your house because temperature does affect things um as you'll as you'll learn as you get into it but um but they're incredible they they're they're very uh validating uh because they're a quick easy ferment for the most part and if you catch them before they get too uh ethanol like too boozy they um they'll pop and fizz in your mouth and they pair wonderfully with like some moths and uh, basil uh, on a plate. It's um, it, it's a very uh, fun ferment to do, and it can be an exciting one. Um, but you know, we also have some others that are uh, videos on our YouTube that are like kind of no fails, like our our preserved lemon. Uh, be and because when you preserve a lemon, you're technically moving into the realm of salt curing as opposed to fermentation. So your your salt is going to be higher. And when that happens, the chances of failure drop dramatically. So like with the preserved lemons, um, dude, I don't even measure. I just take a scoop per, per lemon and it, it all goes over it in the video. And um, that can be a very delicious and, and affirming uh, ferment to do to, to, to approach. But, but I do always recommend to start with the plain classic sauerkraut and, and then broach into the other one. You know, I might just have to check out those fermented tomatoes and try them myself. If you like what you've heard on today's episode, I highly recommend that you check out the fermentation feast at this year's Chow Chow. That dinner is coming up pretty quickly on August 26th. 
In addition to the amazing folks that you heard on today's show, the dinner will also feature Jen Courier, head of Mixed Culture Brewing at Wicked Weed, Jeff Kaplan of Venture Asheville, and the meal will be prepared by Chef Stephen Goff of Jargon, Beth Kellerhalls of French Broad Chocolate Lounge, Andrew McLeod of Avenue M, Malcolm McMillan of Benet on Eagle, and Travis Milton of Nice Wonder Farm and Vineyard. For tickets, head to exploreashville.com. The Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I produce, record, and edit the show, and write our original music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles the website and marketing, sources our stories, and keeps the engines running around here. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to visit our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to read our culinary journal, listen to back episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, or to support us by subscribing to our Patreon. You can hear new episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM the first Sunday of every month at 11 a.m. And please, 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 for the love of waffle fries, go subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts by searching for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour so that you don't miss podcast extras and episodes like this one. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon. <laughs>